The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. This is Heather McCoy's A face in the crowd. Whose face? I could be yours. Only on 88.9 FM Nervin. Irvine. This is 88.9 KCI FM in Irvine. My name's Heather McCoy, and I am uh, doing part two with my interview with Karen Stroinoff, and we were just ending off with last week with Christian Universalism, and um, we're going to pick up this week. I think um, one of the biggest differences between an quote-unquote regular church in this church is we have one build your own theology classes and that's very different even though I haven't had the time to do that yet I just know that's different because I used to go to Calvary Chapel which is in signal range and I didn't like them very much and then um and then we also so the, the other big difference is um once in a while, our members, maybe what, once every two months, every three months, our members actually go up and they present what they believe. And uh, that doesn't happen. And I think the third different thing is we have worship associates that kind of MC or narrate is a more, you know, English lit word, I guess, our services. And then, uh, so Karen's not up there all the time. How did those three things get started? Well, Building Your Own Theology is an adult education curriculum that was written by one of our venerable ministers, Richard Gilbert, who served in Rochester, New York for, I think, over 25 years and is a wonderful, wonderful man. And he wrote a curriculum for people who wanted to get together. And this would be our parallel to something like a Bible study where you, you know, in addition to going to whatever your worship service is on Saturday or Sunday or whatever day you do it, you want to do something a little bit more. And in a Christian church, traditionally, that would be to study the Bible to uh, learn the wisdom that is there. Well, because we use the Bible as only one source and we believe that each individual has to make their own choices, Dick Gilbert wrote a, a curriculum that is a series of class sessions with exercises and various other uh, discussion uh, prompters and so on that people could work through with either the help of their minister or with a lay leader. It's not required that the person leading the class must be a minister. And so that's how that class uh, comes about, and when I teach it, I usually do it for six weeks. Um, that's actually a little bit shorter. It could be eight weeks, or you could even stretch it out and do it for nine or ten weeks. But at any rate, um, the class invites people to think deeply about what is it I believe, and what is it that's important to me? What do I hold sacred? So that's what that's about. Out of that class, people write up a statement that says, this is what I believe. And those are the uh, background pieces to the presentations that you've heard uh, every once in a while on Sunday morning, when people who would like to, and not everyone wants to, some people say, I would rather scrub floors, or 
uh, <laughs> go through waterboarding than get up in front of the church and talk. So, yeah. you know, some people, some people that would be awful, but those who want to uh, have an opportunity to get up and share what their personal belief system is. And by and large, what I hear from people is that they absolutely love it when uh, they get to hear several people, and you get to know someone very much more intensely when you get to hear that. So that was number one. Now, what was number two, you asked? Um, number two, <laughs> let's see, build your own theology, and then I think number two was the... Um, oh, the presentation. The presentation, so yeah. And then the third one was... The third one was the um, worship associate, I believe. Oh, the worship associate, yes. Well... Uh, Unitarian Universalist ministers traditionally preach three times and then get a week off, or some churches say three times a month, so if you have a five-Sunday month, the minister gets two Sundays off that month. But at any rate, the, there needs to be somebody doing the church service the week that the UU minister is not in the pulpit. And so generally speaking, there's some kind of a committee of people that make sure the pulpit is filled. Uh, um, in this church, the, the committee that does that is meeting tomorrow night, so that's where I'll be tomorrow night is working with them on that. We went from that to me saying, you know, when we, have, when we start church and we're going to uh, say welcome to people, it seems to me, given who we are and how we organize ourselves, that it shouldn't be me, the minister, saying welcome, but rather one of you. So then we started saying, well, we need a group of people that are comfortable speaking in front of others to be willing to get up and do the welcome and, and that opening little commentary. And this certainly isn't unique to Unitarian Universalists. Other churches do this, too, at least some other churches. I didn't, I didn't realize that, yeah. yeah. Right. Okay, anyway, and then from there, what became evident is that we had people who were beyond just willing to do this. They were uh -huh. actually quite gifted. And so, and they were very interested in how you structure worship and what makes a worship service good and um, where you get ideas for what to put into the worship service and so on. And that's how we got to what I call the worship associate program, which, is, which goes beyond just a committee saying, who are we going to get for that third Sunday from now when Karen's going to not be here? And so it really developed from um, a, a fairly mundane practice into something that we think is... Uh, more meaningful, and that I believe enhances the uh, enhances what we present on Sunday mornings. I think it's boring to always hear the same voice, yeah. and so I like having more than one voice heard on Sunday morning. The other odd thing that different about service is um, we have joys and sorrows. I think most my grandma was heavily involved with the Methodist church and she would work on those and those would be mostly phone calls and it would be off, it would be off um, the main service and it would just be like a community side note if, you know, if somebody was struggling with a disease or if somebody needed this or uh, somebody needed, um, 
you know, thoughts and prayers for like a job interview or something. And we just incorporate that right into our service. How did that tradition get started? I don't know how it started because it was already well entrenched when I came to the Unitarian Universalist, even as a lay person before I became a minister. I do know that it's very controversial. Um, in fact, it's kind of funny if you go to uh, 10 different Unitarian Universalist churches and say, what are the things people most disagree about? <laughs> Joys and sorrows will make more of the list than almost any other single element. Is that because they can turn into like marathon sessions? Yes, on... <laughs> right. Um, there, uh, the, the tradition in smaller churches is that individuals get up and they get to say on their own, this is what's important that's been going on in my life. And first of all, everyone defines what's important differently. And secondly... Uh, some people do tend to go on, and so yeah. it can last a long time. So you get the people who say, that isn't what I come to church for, I wish we didn't do this, and the other people who say, it is the very thing that I come for <laughs> to church for, and you better not mess with it. And so it becomes quite controversial. In larger churches, it's impossible to do it that way. Yeah. And so in larger churches, either one way uh, some ministers do it is that they incorporate it into what's called a pastoral prayer. And so we would say in the prayer, uh, we are, are wishing for health for Jane, who's having surgery this next week, and our hearts and thoughts are with Frank, whose mother died, and, you know, you'd go through and you'd do those things, and our joy is with uh, Mary and John, who are celebrating 25 years of being married or celebrating having a new baby or whatever, you know. And so it's done that way, and it keeps it in uh, an appro contained in an appropriate time frame. Yeah. Um, it's it's hard because when people have been used to hearing it said by the individual, they don't want to give that up. But when you have, if you're going to have 10 people that want to say something, it'll take too much time out yeah. of the worship service. And I think sometimes uh, a friend of mine passed away in a horrific way, and I was happy that you said that and not me, because if I had said it, I would have just completely fallen apart and I don't that's not something you want to share a lot of times and so it, for me like I, I don't mind small I don't mind sharing my small joys in, in the first service where you can can come up and s say in front of the audience I just did this or I did that and then everybody applauds and um but for the tragedies yeah I've only shared one and I don't I can imagine going up there and having to say that because it's just difficult yeah, and you're not the first person that has told me that. And that I wish that some of the people who are so unhappy that we've changed to the new way in the second service could understand that they're getting to hear about things in some of our lives that they weren't before because it's too hard to say it yeah. uh, for yourself. So um, going forward, even though um, in retirement, how much of a part of the church are you going to still retain? Are you retired, retired, or are you just going to, are you going to still do a few things? Well, or? the tradition in Unitarian Universalism is that when the minister leaves a church, 
they leave the church. So um, during the interim period, and as a new minister becomes settled here, I will not be around at all because the congregation needs the chance to uh, figure out what they're looking for, and the new minister needs the chance to make his or her mark on the congregation without interference from the former minister. And that makes sense. And so I guess I can phrase this question this way. Since you're not going to be a, a part of things anymore, where do you want to see the church, this one individually, and um, as a whole, where do you want to see the church go? Well, I would like to see the church continue to thrive because I think it is thriving. I would like to see it remain true to our seven principles. But most of all, I don't believe that the minister should decide which direction the church is going in. I think the minister's there to help bring into fruition what the congregation decides. So what I want is the congregation here to continue its strong voice and continue its discourse or dialogue about what are the important issues and how should we be addressing them? How should we be living out our call to justice, um, living out our seven principles? And I think the last question I'm going to ask you from, at least from a church perspective, is like the, um, of course, the more reactionary religious, it's kind of a throw on question, but it was, the time had passed before, so I'm, I apologize. But uh, the, how do you, when you do your build your own theology class, how do you reconcile the reactionary, uh, the reactionary's uh, favorite passages from the book of Revelations when God is just very angry? Well, first of all, no one in building your own theology has ever brought that up or asked that <laughs> as an issue for discussion. Um, when I talk to someone outside of the church and they want to talk about the book of Revelations, depending on my relationship to them, I want to be, regardless of my relationship to them, I want to be respectful of the fact that this is something they believe in mm -hmm. and that they believe is the word of God. And so I may sort of avoid the conversation if there isn't a strong relationship. But with someone where I have a strong relationship, I am willing to say that my personal belief system is centered around the idea that all the great religious books were written by human beings. And even if there's some divine inspiration in them, in the translation, humans make mistakes. And that I personally think that the book of Revelations is a piece of work that was essentially by a human being, that it is not divine, it is not the last word, and like the good universalists throughout history, I do not believe that the God, uh, that God is that God. And that's, I mean, that's one of the weirdest things about this church is that uh, we don't have like, one way is our way, and then if you don't believe that, we don't sell other religions like you're not going to heaven or something. Um, I've been to 
what do you focus on the family events where their way is the only way. And if you're Muslim or Mormon or you, you, you're going straight to hell. And it's just, it's, it's, to me, it just takes a lot of brass to say that to somebody when you don't ultimately know. I mean, that's always been my problem. And so, um, how do you feel about that kind of absolutism that you is more on the Christian right? Well, in some ways, I'm envious of it. It would, it seems <laughs> to me, it would be very comforting to believe, to be so convicted mm. in the right of what I believe that I don't have any doubts that you know that I have the answers. And that seems to me like it would be very comforting. It is not something that is possible for me. I have doubts. And I live with my doubts, and I have found faith in spite of my doubts. But that doesn't mean there aren't any doubts. (laughs) So for me, it is not a workable answer but I try to be respectful of other people. And I wish sometimes they were as respectful of me as I try to be of them. And I try not to say that someone else is wrong because they believe differently from me. But it's not my belief. Yeah, um, that, that, that's, I don't, I'm not sure what to say. I mean, to me, that's kind of, I just try to say you believe in your thing and I believe in mine and I just try not to let that taint any possible relationship I have because it's just for me it's just not that important and some people it's everything and and so um well what, I mentioned a few minutes ago that I really love interfaith work yeah. and I do I don't believe you can do interfaith work unless you are very generous-spirited toward others. So I work to be very polite. And in the interfaith groups that I'm in, I'm treated with the same degree of respect and politeness that I offer to others because we understand. We cannot discuss the very controversial things and still be able to work together. We have to look for the common ground. And I think I think that's kind of implied when you step into that realm that you're going to, because it's a interfaith work to start with, and they wouldn't be there if they couldn't take a step back and just kind of work together on something. For the interfaith work, what do you mostly do? Um, well, right now I'm uh, a very active. I'm a vice president of the board with the Newport Mesa Irvine Interfaith Council. I have and hope to in the future do lots of work with the Parliament for the World's Religions. When I was living in Chicago, I was more active than I have been here. Um, I have also worked with interfaith coalitions doing things, uh, you know, specific tasks. Um, So we have Big Sunday coming up in May, and this church is participating in that, and that's definitely interfaith. Um, I am one of the co-chairs of the uh, uh, four chaplains, the Immortal Chaplains Association. Association, and that's an interfaith organization. Um, 
going to conferences, going to dialogue, going to meetings where there will be people of other faith traditions and looking to learn from each other and then to find common ground so that we can do some work together. I think that's pretty amazing because in my life it just seems like you can disagree with people most of the time, but to try to find common ground, that seems like that's always the hardest task. So Well, uh, my favorite, one of my favorite people on the Interfaith Council is the Roman Catholic member. And we have some areas where we know there's absolutely no common ground, but we have plenty of other areas where there is common ground. We can work on poverty, we can work on the rights of children, we can work on educational issues. And those things are very important. And we know our voice is stronger if we share it than if we go it alone. Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the other thing I find extremely fascinating, not just about you personally and not you use them, is it seems like, if I remember correctly, um, you got your uh, pastoral degree rather late in life. Uh, can you explain that for a little bit? Well, I don't think it's anywhere near over yet. So. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think I'm probably third career. My first career was a traditional teaching kind of career and my second career was uh, I was still doing some teaching but at the college level and doing business consulting, organizational consulting, uh, research, that kind of thing. And then I went into ministry. Mm. Um, the call to ministry comes when the call to ministry comes. It doesn't necessarily follow a um, common pattern. <laughs> yes. So when did you get that call? I got that call uh, about 17 years ago now when I was considering um, when I might have some free time at a meeting, the first of our annual assemblies that I was going to, but I was going as a lay person, and I was looking at the program and I saw that there was going to be a workshop from Meadville where I ended up uh, talking about the paths to ministry and in the moment I was reading that, I recognized that that was what I needed to do with the rest of my life. So your kids didn't have, you started out later in life, so your kids didn't get the experience of being the minister's kids, or they... No, but they seem to have uh, fallen into it rather well anyway. <laughs> they, were all <laughs> they were all grown and out of the nest, so to speak, by the time I did this. In fact, I was a student after my sons were all grown and out of school and one of them said when I was doing the internship and I was away from town so I was uh, you know corresponding by letter he said one day mom I have friends who sound the same way you do when they write about their lives it's really weird <laughs> <laughs> you're one of the more radical people I know, but I don't know that well. So how would you fit in the business world? Because at one point I was, I, was in that, I was in that degree in Long Beach State and all the kids didn't seem like they had a lot of imagination or enthusiasm for anything outside of numbers. And so I was just kind of curious how that went. Well, okay, first of all, um, the consulting I did in business was with smaller businesses. 
uh, often things that had started out family-owned and then graduated to where they had 50 or maybe 100 employees. And they had the standard um, human resources-type concerns about how do you do good supervision, how do we communicate effectively. Lots of people who said, I don't write well, and I need some help with writing business correspondence, you know, that kind of thing. And sometimes with conflict management stuff, um, stress management, people in all sizes of business have that. Yeah. So I did that kind of consulting for business. In the field of education and other organizations, I was much more at home because, after all, I'd been a teacher for all those years, so I just stepped out of the classroom and did training that was either administrative or I was teaching teachers. How do, you yeah. do, how do you do a good job of teaching? And in organizational stuff, I've always been a great joiner and a great uh, uh, participant in uh, voluntary associations, the kinds of things you join because they are doing some work that you think is important in the world or they represent a constituency that you are part of, that kind of thing. And they, again, need that standard stuff, good communications, good supervisory uh, management and arrangements. Ironically, I also did training for parents' groups on how to do good parenting, and one of the things I realized is that there was a whole lot of carryover. They aren't exactly the same, but how you be a good supervisor and how you be a good mom or dad, <laughs> really there's a lot of common ground there. Yeah. If I remember right, your first experience going to uh, UU Church, you had to be kind of dragged there? Oh, yes. You want to hear that story? Huh? Sure. Why not? <laughs> well... I had grown up in a community where um, the, well, I, I shouldn't say the community, in a family where the uh, Unitarian Universalists, because they were not uh, Christian, were considered godless. Mm -hmm. And I also had noticed in my high school that a lot of the kids who were Unitarian Universalists were the ones who kind of flouted the rules. They were the ones who would go out drinking and, and um, they'd cut class but figure out how to get by with it. And, and they thought it was funny to break the rules and get by with them. And I didn't like that. I was kind of a goody two-shoes, so I didn't like that. And my first husband was a Unitarian, and he uh, dutifully went with me to church, but neither one of us felt at home in the liberal Christian churches we tried out. And after a while, we kind of didn't go on Sunday morning at all. And then my kids got old enough that I knew they needed some kind of religious orientation and organization in their lives. And I said to my husband, will you, uh, we got to go to church somewhere with these kids. And he said, I'll go to church with you, but the only church I'll go to is Unitarian. And I can remember thinking to myself, well, I suppose it's better than nothing. <laughs> and of course, that is a great irony given where I've ended up. <laughs> yeah. 
So I th- if I remember right, like you were, didn't even want to get out of the car. Oh, yeah. all right. So you want that part of the story. Well, that part of the story is that the other piece that I didn't like um, was that I found Unitarians at that time to be um, sort of a very satisfied, very self-congratulatory. They really liked the fact that they had the right answer to everything, even though that's not the way I see them today. But at any rate, um, when we were going to church the first Sunday morning, a friend of my family, someone who'd known me all my life, was in my mother's generation, came up to me and said something like, so you finally figured out that you belong here with the best of us or something to that effect. And I was actually willing to go back. We were out of the car, but I was ready to go back. And my husband just kind of clamped my arm to his side and dragged me along into the church, which is one of the best things he ever did for me since it turned out to be wonderful. And I think that's something that every religion struggles with, by the way, when we find something that works so well for us and means so much in our life, we think we've got the best thing since sliced bread and it's very easy to give other people the impression that we think we're better than they are. And I know that's not true about Unitarian Universalists and I suspect it's not true about most other religions too, but we probably need to be very sensitive to what kind of impression we are giving. Yeah, um, they kind of, that what's kind of interesting is those feelings are in direct contrast of your last sermon, which was about a garbage disposal and a chalice. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to be serious and you get things done, but at the same time, have a good time. And so what kind of loosened you up to, like, um, to not be so rigid? My mom had a p- period of time where she was really rigid about things, and then now she's kind of let go. I, I mean, how was that process with you? I think it's just the attrition that life wreaks on all of us. You can only keep that up for so long, and then it just gets to be too much work, and it's easier to let it go. So I don't know. I don't have a moment or an event that changed me. I think it just wore me down. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess the last question for the day is: uh, What are your plans for retirement? Because uh, you're just way too active to. <laughs> be retired. Well, I don't plan to retire. <laughs> I, I plan to work less time and I'm going to uh, do a halftime ministry, which means that will free me up to spend the rest of that time on so going back to some of that community work that I love. Um, the uh, particular thing that I'm going to do is the Unitarian Universalist Legislative Ministry, which, uh, and I'm a member of their board, so I'm already in place for this, but they, uh, they make efforts to go to the source with some of our social problems and look at what do we need to change in the infrastructure to uh, eliminate the problems that are besetting our society and, and causing some of the difficulties that people are struggling with. Well, thank you very much for your time. I know you have quite a busy schedule. And uh, you've been listening to Reverend Karen Stoynoff, and this is Heather McCoy for Heather McCoy's Face in the Crowd. And stay tuned next for uh, Limbrow for Liberals with Newhaw. And thanks for listening.